one of the most expressive works Piotr Tchaikovsky ever wrote. The Fourth Symphony, which he composed in his late 30s, is astonishingly dramatic, full of power and pathos, all the more so because it seems to have sprung from the agonies of Tchaikovsky's private life at the time, not long after his catastrophic marriage had fallen apart after just a few months. As I'll be explaining, this is one of those pieces of classical music that it's impossible to disassociate from the personal life of its composer. But Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony is a fascinating work to explore on the purely musical level too. At a time when Austrian and German music reigns supreme right across Europe, Tchaikovsky was injecting the symphonic form with something essentially Russian, both in terms of its melodies, the orchestral colour and the way it puts ideas together. And I'll be looking at Tchaikovsky's fourth from that point of view too. So whichever angle you come at this music from, I promise you're in for an exhilarating ride. So where else to start than at the very beginning? The first few bars of Tchaikovsky's fourth make for one of the most famous symphonic openings of all. Its blazing brass fanfare is the key to the entire work, or as the composer put it, the kernel, the quintessence, the chief thought of the whole symphony. He said it stood for fate, the power which prevents one from attaining the goal of happiness. There is nothing to be done but to submit to it and lament in vain. the sombre opening of Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. And if you're wondering what the composer had to be so fatalistic about, well, as ever with romantic composers, Tchaikovsky's private life at that time holds the answer. It's the story of two women. One was a young woman called Antonina Milyukova, who'd been a student of his at the Moscow Conservatoire and had fallen in love with him from afar. She wrote a love letter to Tchaikovsky early in 1877 and when he didn't reply, she followed it up with another one in which she threatened to kill herself. Tchaikovsky was secretly gay and had no interest in the female sex, but according to one interpretation of his remarks, he thought it would be a good idea to get married to stop his enemies spreading gossip about his sexuality. So he decided to marry Antonina all of a sudden, despite telling her that he would never love her. A moment of madness, which Tchaikovsky would always regret. The phrase, marry in haste, repent at leisure, could have been invented especially for him. As he wrote to his brother later, that man who in May took it into his head to marry Antonina Ivanovna, who during June wrote a whole opera as though nothing had happened, who in July married, who in September fled from his wife, who in November railed at Rome, and so on, that man wasn't I, but another, Pyotr Ilyich. Unfortunately, though, those two men really were one and the same, and he had to live with the consequences of this for the rest of his life. Getting divorced was extremely difficult in Russia in those days. Proof of infidelity was needed, and Antonina just wasn't prepared to perjure herself, even when she was offered an enormous bribe of 10,000 rubles to do so. This came from the second woman in Tchaikovsky's life, 
Najda von Meck, a wealthy widow of a railway tycoon who supported the composer financially over a 14-year period. Their relationship was about more than just money, though. Madame von Meck was also his sounding board for matters both artistic and personal, and they wrote to each other on a daily basis, exchanging more than a thousand letters. She was, I suppose, his patroness. She did pay him an allowance of 6,000 roubles a year so that he could get on with composing. But their relationship seems to have been closer than that. When she asked how work in the Fourth Symphony was progressing, he answered describing the new work as Our Symphony and outlined the famous programme for the first movement, which I quoted from earlier and which we often associate with the work. Let's rejoin the action at the heart of the first movement, in which he says bitter reality alternates with evanescent visions and dreams of happiness. Here's a sequence lasting for some four minutes or so that shows how Tchaikovsky takes us ever so gradually from his relaxed main theme in 9-8 time with flutes and violins over a lightly tapping timpani accompaniment through to the ominous return of the fate motif. The standard thing for me here is the unstoppable momentum of the music. There's something about the way Tchaikovsky drives us from light into darkness in that terrifying passage that's quintessentially romantic. And its momentum comes not only from the repetition of that waltz time idea, but also the ever-darkening scoring and the word stringendo in the score, indicating that the music has to get faster and faster. A magic moment. So much for the dramatic narrative. What about the actual makeup of the music? This is a good point to step back and reflect on the remarkable transformation that had overtaken Russia's music scene in the decades leading up to this symphony. It may have been booming in the late 1870s, but just a few decades before, it had been anything but. At the very start of the century, public concerts were almost unheard of in Russia, and outside the exclusive confines of the imperial opera houses, orchestral music was almost entirely in the hands of brilliant individuals such as Mikhail Glinka, self-taught amateurs who had no conservatoires to study at. They had to piece together an education for themselves. But that lack of training also proved to be a boon, forcing composers to develop their own idiosyncratic musical styles. And, as a result, Russia produced some of the most distinctive and individual music of the time. But then, in the early 1860s, things changed, and quickly. Tchaikovsky was one of the first students to graduate from the brand-new St. Petersburg Conservatory, and he was immediately headhunted to teach theory at another new institution that was being set up in Moscow. His talent had been spotted by Nikolai Rubinstein, a dynamic conductor, pianist and composer with an insatiable taste for drinking, gambling and socialising. It was Rubinstein who years later conducted the premiere of this Fourth Symphony. Rubinstein, though, wasn't everyone's cup of tea. He was satirised as Tupinstein, Dullstone, or Dubinstein, Dumbstone, 
by a breakaway group of leading Russian composers known either as the Mighty Handful or simply as the Five. They strongly believe that their country's music education system shouldn't just churn out pale imitations of German composers. They believed that the time had come for Russia to develop music in a way which was characteristically Russian. As their guiding light Vladimir Stasov put it, it was time for the hoop skirts and tailcoats of the Petersburg elites to make way for the long Russian coats of the provinces. And so they set up a free music school of their own to rival the conservatories and take music in what they thought was the right direction. The whole thing going hand in hand with a renewed interest in peasant art and culture in the 1870s. So where did Tchaikovsky stand on all this? Right in the middle, I'd say. On the one hand, he had lots to be grateful to Nikolai Rubinstein for, on the whole a great promoter of his music. While on the other hand, he stayed on good terms with the mighty handful composers without throwing in his lot with them. And he was also in a good position to keep up with all the developments in the kind of music being written in Western Europe at the time, thanks to the work he did on the side as a music critic. The kind of logical creative process that someone like Johannes Brahms brought to his music didn't work for Tchaikovsky at all. For him, Brahms's music was made up of little fragments of something or other artfully glued together, he never expresses anything, or if he does, he never does it fully. Wagner comes off slightly better. Tchaikovsky travelled to Bayreuth to cover the first ever ring cycle there in 1876. He thought Das Rheingold was unlikely nonsense, through which from time to time sparkle unusually beautiful and astonishing details. Tchaikovsky started work on this fourth symphony the following year, and I can hear hints of Wagner in the orchestration and in the way the themes spaciously unfold. There's famously another important element to Tchaikovsky, writing ballet music, something he'd embarked on two summers before when the Moscow Theatre Directorate had commissioned Swan Lake from him, starting a process which saw him revolutionising the world of ballet. And we get a glimpse of that world at the start of the Fourth Symphony's third movement, which starts with the string section plucking their instruments or playing pizzicato ostinato. Putting the rigours of fate to one side for the moment, this is music that's meant to be fun. He's happy to present a succession of attractive melodies there and repeat them rather than break the material down into motives in a development section. We've heard that a typically Brahmsian way of developing motives isn't for him. Instead, Tchaikovsky's music relies on great tunes and bags of orchestral colour. And we get lots more of that at the very start of the finale. It opens with a huge crash of the cymbals and lots of scurrying energy in the orchestra. That kind of sound world could only be created by a Russian composer. And very quickly it subsides to let the woodwind instruments shine through with what his audience would recognise as a well-known traditional Russian song. In the field stood a birch tree. It starts with the falling minor key phrase. 
And as the finale progresses, it's developed alongside the triumphant scurrying theme. When the ominous fate motif appears at the heart of the movement, it's dispelled once and for all by the optimistic music around it. So as far as the meaning of the Fourth Symphony goes, does that signify the forces of fate have been conquered or is that too narrow a reading? Perhaps we should look more closely at the programme. All six of Tchaikovsky's symphonies have extra musical meanings of some sort. The first three have titles attached to them, not always by Tchaikovsky himself, Winter Daydreams, The Little Russian and The Polish. After this fourth symphony, the fifth is built around a fate motto theme in a similar way, as is his so-called Manfred Symphony. While Tchaikovsky said about the sixth, the famous Pathétique, that it had a programme that will remain a mystery. So perhaps there's a danger we can read too much into the storyline that Tchaikovsky attached to the Fourth Symphony. Perhaps he was just giving his patroness Madame von Meck some clues to listen out for, without intending to nail down the music's meaning for all time. It's interesting to read what Tchaikovsky had to say about the symphony in a letter to his pupil Tanyev, who pressed him on what the symphony was about. Of course my symphony is programmatic, Tchaikovsky answered, but this programme is such that it cannot be formulated in words that would excite ridicule and appear comic. Ought not a symphony, that is, the most lyrical of all forms, to be such a work? Should it not express everything for which there are no words, but which the soul wishes to express and which requires to be expressed? So Tchaikovsky, it seems to me, rather than giving a specific message in his symphony, is giving lyrical voice to his innermost thoughts without specifying exactly what they are. And so we can take that as our cue to respond to the music according to our own imaginations. Surely that's the essence of all great romantic music. In listening to a performance, the composer's drama can become our own personal drama. With that in mind, let's join the action right in the middle of the Fourth Symphony's finale and follow it through to something which needs surely no explanation, a life-affirmingly positive conclusion. You're listening to RTE Lyric Live with the National Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> 